Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. We have a trio of tales for you this evening, about a couple who've planned the perfect date, a wedding ritual that doesn't quite go as planned, and a man whose dedication to his wife goes above and beyond. But first, our darkest, most devilish thanks goes out this week to our newest patron, Duncan Winter. Thank you from the bottom of our twisted, blackened hearts, Duncan. Your generous support gives us the best kind of chills, and we appreciate it so much. If you'd like to join Duncan behind the veil, and enjoy some excellent perks while you're at it, visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify and sign up. You'll be glad you did. Now, let's dive into the shadows. Our first story for the evening comes from Victoria Turner. Victoria Turner is a writer from Northern California. She holds a B.A. in English Literature from the University of California, Davis, and has upcoming works in multiple collections. Children of the Night, join me for Victoria Turner's Date Night, a Tales to Terrify original.
I've prepared the night carefully, just for you, taking the time to drag our old dining room table into the living room, its legs sinking slightly into the yellowing carpet. Despite the odd location, it's set perfectly for our date. An old but clean white tablecloth, table set, my cutlery angled just so. I escort you, the guest of honor, to your seat. The rest of the house is pitch black and silent. I've unplugged all of our appliances, turned out all the lights other than the lamp behind you. Even that might be too much. We can't risk blowing a fuse, not tonight. You sit stock still in one of two chairs as I step backward, making a sincere apology for the interruption. I dash to the bedroom, toes snagging on my heels, to grab a half-burned-out candle. When I return, you're waiting for me, propped up in the chair across from mine, staring. When I unplug the last lamp and light the candle, I know you don't mind. You've always enjoyed a bit of romance. The candle takes its place at the center of our table, surrounded by a wreath of winding red wires. Our special project. It had taken more time than anticipated to set up. Three long weeks of waiting and working and wanting you to get it just right. It's ready now. In the dim light, our machine almost looks like the heart monitor they would have attached to you in the unnaturally sterile hospital. Bright, clean, and impersonal, compared to our dingy floral wallpaper and yellowing shag. I plug in our machine. It remains silent. The switch glints at me as it waits to be turned on. Before we begin, I make sure you're comfortable, pushing your chair in towards the table. Hands gripping your stiff shoulders, I help you lean back. Your cold body twists just so, unblinking. When you're ready, I press my lips hard to the crown of your head. Let myself taste your skin. I'm not sure if it will be the same after. The candle flickers as I take up the knife on the table and place it lovingly to your temple. I begin to split the near-festering flesh to the bone. You don't seem to mind the smell. Your skin is tough from the weeks of waiting. I try my best not to hack, not to disturb the gentle sweep of hair you spent hours perfecting for tonight. Getting through your skull is more difficult than I anticipated. The serrated blade sticks and pulls as bits of you seep through the open crevice. I begin to sweat from the exertion. The hand I'm using to keep your head steady has warmed your cheek. When I finally carved deep enough, I take one of our red wires, and then another, and thread them deep, as close as I can get to your hippocampus, your amygdala. You stare, unblinking, as I sweep the hair out of your now warm face the best I can. I take the seat across from you at our dining living room table, reaching past the candle and the red wires that now wind from the machine to the table to your brain. I take your stiff hand. Your wedding ring sits unmoving on your bloated finger. With my free hand, I take another wire, and with the help of my knife, I insert it into my skull by way of the back of my neck. Another goes into my temple. The third stabs through the flesh of my chest just left of my sternum. 
Across from me, in the dim, flickering candlelight, the shadow of your mouth mimics a smile. The red wires swing between us, you, me, and our machine. The strings make us marionettes, you my puppeteer as much as I am yours. After all, this was your idea. A never-ending date night, you had called it, here in the yellow carpet of our dining living room. We would be together forever, in the countless moments of your memories, in the single moment of my death. One hand still holding yours, the other wet with my blood and your viscera. I flip the switch. That was Victoria Turner's Date Night, as read by Andrew Gibson. Andrew was pulled feet first from the swamps of South Louisiana, kicking and screaming, and he remains mostly as such to this day. You can find his work on Audible under Andrew Gibson, or, for the more romantically inclined, Blake Lockhart. You can also catch him streaming his recording sessions live in The Narrator Nook and The Haven Discord servers. Links are in the show notes. Thank you, Andrew. Our second tale tonight comes from Marguerite Sheffer. Marguerite Sheffer is an educator who lives in New Orleans, Louisiana. Her work has appeared, or is forthcoming, in Asimov's science fiction The Dread Machine, Cast of Wonders, and The Pinch. Maggie is a founding member of Third Lantern Lit, a community writing collective, and volunteers at 826 New Orleans. She is a member of the Nautilus and Wildcat writing groups. You can find her online at mlensheffer and margaretesheffer.com. Listen with me, children of the night, to Marguerite Sheffer's The Wedding Table, a Tales to Terrify original. Before our gathered families, Elena and I took our seats at the wedding table, laid with china and sauces from the community store, ponzu, Worcestershire, teriyaki, A1, and ketchup. Each was half full, brought out for only the most special occasions, saved, savored, and passed down. I wanted to try them all. Maybe that's what marriage would be like, trying all the special sauces together. I smiled at Elena, willing her to be brave. Her simple brown hair was tied up in intricate ropes. At the center of the table, the grill glowed. The embers of the heart, sang the priest. I warmed my cleaver over the heat. Elena lifted her slender wrist to the red tablecloth. I grasped that hand and squeezed it in mine. I leaned forward to get more leverage. 
She closed her eyes, and I brought my scorching cleaver down fast and clean as I could. The coagulants and painkillers worked. Elena never cried out, just breathed in quickly through pursed lips. Flames rose as I used the tongs to place her severed hand on the grill. The audience politely clapped. She'd been so brave, after all her fretting. Very respectable. Soon, after consecrating our interdependence, I'd use a silver cocktail fork to wrangle out the succulent bits. My turn. My left wrist. Elena was turning her cleaver over the fire, one-handed. Unbidden, I imagined a clarinet, an instrument I'd never touched before, the warm barrel suspended between both hands, my fingers gracing the holes and silver keys. What songs would I never learn to play? Dear Elena brought her cleaver down. I pulled my wrist away, jostling the wine glasses. A plate shattered. Such disappointment in Elena's eyes. It was not quiet for long. Our parents were already helping each other out of their seats. They reached the wedding table, moving to pin me with their four hands, still against the chair, high-backed and sturdy. That was Marguerite Sheffer's The Wedding Table, read by, you guessed it, Andrew Gibson. Thank you again, Andrew. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Our final tale this week comes to us from S.H. Livernoise. S.H. Livernoise lives in northern New York with her husband and dog. She writes in multiple genres, but everything she writes scares both herself and her loved ones. The books in her supernatural mystery series, The Frontenac Sisters, Supernatural Sleuths and Monster Hunters, are all indie author Project Select titles. She has also won an Indie Bragg medallion. Lend me your ears, children of the night, for S.H. Liver Noises in Sickness and in Slaughter.
a Tales to Terrify original. The trickiest part of getting his wife clean, after one of her spells, was keeping the brains from clogging the tub drain. He'd learned that the hard way, the first time Alice had come home like this. Many mistakes were made that night, least of all scouring gray matter out of a dozen tiny drain holes. Four years and many full moons later, he'd adapted into an expert. Though an expert in what, he couldn't tell anyone, but no one, he was certain, did this better than Eugene Mayhorn. He'd unloaded Alice in the usual spot for cleanup, the clawfoot tub downstairs. It was just after 2 a.m. She was inert, unconscious, nude, and reeking. A primordial stench that made Eugene think of a carnivore who'd had his snout in a torn stomach cavity. The smell was like nothing he'd ever experienced before. It had mass, misting the air gray-green with a sweet, rotten flavor that coated his tongue. And it was not escaping through the window. A light breeze drifted in, and an animal scurried past, rustling a bush, but the stink remained. Thankfully, he had a remedy for this. With a fresh garbage bag in hand, Eugene took one step inside the bathroom, keeping a wary eye on his wife and the blood-spattered porcelain tub that cocooned her. He removed his poncho and stuffed it in the garbage bag, which he placed on the floor. He'd already laid down the plastic. It was murder scrubbing blood from between the tiles, something he'd also learned the hard way. Walking on tiptoes, he crossed to the bathroom sink cupboard, fetched his kit, hidden behind the comet and Lysol, and took out the clothespin and bandana, which he fastened to his face in that order. The stench, for the most part, vanished, but Eugene could still taste it. He gagged, though his stomach was empty, by design, of course. He always fasted on the full moon. He barely ate at all anymore, actually. Alice had noticed his frame wasting away over the months, and Eugene responded to her comments with a dismissive wave. Just a new exercise plan, he excused. And she didn't push, which was hurtful. Didn't she worry at all if he was ill? Illness could easily explain his diminished appearance. His limbs were stringy and fragile, like a preteen boy after his first growth spurt. His clothes, the same trousers and button-up shirt he always wore, sagged off his bones, and his glasses slid off his thinned-out face. Where his posture was once erect, he now hunched a little at the shoulders. He hadn't lost any of his hair, thankfully, but the black curls, which he tamed with pomade, were streaked with gray. Wrinkles had sprouted around his eyes. He felt as desiccated as he looked like a gentle breeze could shred him into dust. 
Sometimes, he longed for it. He put on a fresh poncho and elbow-length dish gloves and surveyed the mess of his darling wife. The blood painted all over her stout body. She was shaped more like a barrel now than an hourglass. And the, Eugene gagged again, tissue in her hair. God, I don't want to do this. Eugene took a deep breath and remembered that he was breathing in and cough-gagged. He moved closer, but an opposing force, instinct he supposed, tried to push him back, as if he were approaching a grizzly bear before her first meal of the spring. He placed the folded towel on the floor next to the tub and knelt, bending over her. Let's make you beautiful, Alice. The first task was to mop up the blood before it dried, which required an entire roll of paper towels. He wiped everything because the gore was everywhere, under her breasts, between her legs and toes, across her stomach, inside her navel, and between fat rolls, pale as uncooked dough. He merely patted her left arm, though, avoiding the fresh wound there. He cleaned the tub as well, lifting her heavy body here and there to clean beneath and around her. Eugene slapped a gloved hand on her shoulder and shoved her forward, so that her heavy breasts smacked against her thighs and wiped down her back. Bloody rag after bloody rag went into the garbage can, and she was pink and raw when he was done, shreds of paper towel clinging to her clammy skin. When he was pacified, he took the wide-tooth comb in hand. This and the next task were among the foulest. Eugene started picking through her graying hair like she was an ape, collecting bits of brain and wiping them into a grotesque pile in the palm of his gloved hand. As Eugene worked, his mind drifted. He pondered how, hours before, these shreds of matter had generated thought and personality and memory. Stop. Don't. That was a dark path. He couldn't go down there. He sucked in a shaky breath and imagined the bits in his palm were cold oatmeal. Next were her teeth. Over the years, coffee and tea had tinted them the color of pale urine, but they were straight and well-shaped. Alice did have a dazzling smile, which she brought out to play more often lately. Eugene carefully flossed between them. Shreds of something came loose and he deposited these in his palm as well. Then he scrubbed under her nails with a bristle brush, extracting more blood and more tissue. Now came the deep clean. He sprayed her with the shower head. Little rivers of pink streamed across the basin of the tub toward the drain. Then he squirted half a bottle of dish soap all over her body and the tub, spraying both with water not stopping until the porcelain was ivory again. He filled it with the hottest water and way too much soap and lathered and scrubbed and exfoliated his wife from head to toe. When she was polished clean and looked herself again, Eugene removed the clothespin and bandana. There was still a faint stench in the room, but there was little else he could do. Sweating and lightheaded, he drained the water. Alice lay there, glossy and nude. 
With all the ugliness scoured away, Eugene could finally see the woman he married. Sodden curls of her wild hair clung to the side of her neck and collarbone, tracing the curve of her breasts. He sat down on the toilet and just looked at her, so helpless in the bath, so calm and quiet with nothing to upset her. In all the years he'd known Alice, she'd complained about her size, that she was too big, too hippie, too sturdy, not feminine. She reminded him of one of those Renaissance beauties with their rounded, soft curves, like Titian's Venus of Urbino. The ideal of womanliness and sensuality, in his opinion. The comparison didn't exactly offend her, but she never liked it either. Though they sailed past 40 together, Alice had either stopped caring what she looked like or had decided to embrace this description because she... Though they sailed past 40 together, Alice neither stopped caring what she looked like or decided to embrace this description because she'd become rounder and softer. Perhaps she assumed Eugene preferred this cushiony look. He didn't, but was still relieved to see her unclothed. These monthly bathtub sessions were all he was permitted these days. He sat a few more minutes to enjoy the view, searching within her lush curves for the thinner Alice he'd married 25 years before. Eugene picked up the plastic he'd laid on the floor and stuffed this in the garbage bag, laid down towels, and dragged Alice from the tub, laying her upon them. She didn't often look pitiful, but she did now, drawn and pale and barely breathing. He checked her vitals, blood pressure, blood sugar, oxygen levels, finding all abnormal, but not critical. His throat tightened. This took so much out of her, and Eugene feared it had gotten worse each month. There was nothing for him to compare it to, no reference he could turn to for answers. It was all guesswork. What was next? How long could this go on? No one knew. He leaned over her, kissing her lightly on the forehead, whispering, I love you with every ounce of strength he had. There was one more task before the transformation was complete, and this Eugene dreaded more than picking human tissue from her hair, teeth, and nails. The wound on her arm had shrunk a bit since he'd first spied it and would continue to heal supernaturally fast while she slept and recovered, but he wanted it gone now. He put on a set of nitrile gloves took a pair of tweezers and, with both hand and instrument trembling, approached. He gagged, eyes watering. Dr. Eugene Mayhorn used to love peeking inside the human body, most preferably into an open chest cavity. Man, thus broken apart and exposed, was at his most vulnerable, and it was his responsibility to put the patient back together. That wasn't surgery's only appeal, though. Once he'd seen inside a human, of any gender, race, or age, he realized what the optimists and poets already knew. People were all the same. Blood and guts were a great equalizer. But what he saw inside Alice's cut was beyond the normal, marking her out as an other not an equal, though, whether she was better or worse than the rest of humanity, he had no idea. 
If sheer strength were a deciding factor, the answer was probably better. Eugene looked at her arm from the corner of his eye, which leaked a hopeless tear that trailed down his cheek to settle salty and warm in the crook of his mouth. He forced his arm to move, the tweezers edging closer, but another gag stopped him. He breathed slowly, steadily, and his head swam. Again. The cut gaped open like a mouth sucking air. It was closer to her elbow than her shoulder and inside. Eugene didn't see dermis or muscle. There was no blood. No something poked out from inside Alice into the world, stark against her silken white skin. A tuft of soft black fur. It was the same shade as her hair. Eugene didn't want to go near it, not even with gloved fingers, but of course he had to get rid of it. He couldn't be in the house with her, not like that. He went after the wound with his tweezers again, hesitating for a half-second of disgust, and forced his mind to blank. Duty before fear. He held his breath. In swift, frightened movements, he tucked the fur back into the gash, under Alice's torn skin, smoothing away any stray hairs, trying not to think about how soft and pliable the fur felt under the tweezers, or how they slipped under the flap of the severed skin where he felt even more fur, unseen beneath the familiar curve of her bicep. He didn't want to concede that this creature filled the inside of his wife's body, wearing her skin like a costume. Eugene tried not to think of these things and failed, and when he was done, collapsed on the floor next to his wife, leaning against the toilet feeling faint and clammy. He ripped off his glasses and sat with his sweating forehead in his hands, shuddering and fighting the urge to vomit or run from the bathroom and then the house, leaving Alice to face this horror alone. He shook his head. That wasn't an option. From his secret bag, Eugene pulled out a suture kit he'd pilfered from work years ago, when he'd still had a job. He took up a needle and thread and closed the wound, erasing the fur. Alice was a normal woman, Again, nothing was wrong. Nothing at all. He packed up his secret kit and placed it back in its hiding place, pulling out another, bigger bag. This contained beauty products Alice used to use, but, for reasons he didn't understand, no longer bothered with. Her health was frail when she recovered, yes, but once she did, Alice was ebullient, if a little distracted and flighty. Despite that, she no longer straightened her hair or wore makeup, and that was all right. He could cope with the loose layers of mismatched clothes she now wore, too. But the lapse in shaving? It was difficult, watching Alice neglect herself like that. It spoke to him of something wrong, like she didn't take pride in herself anymore. So Eugene shaved all that could be shaved gave her a manicure and pedicure, exfoliated her face and applied a balancing toner and serum under her eyes, and smeared her from hairline to collarbone with a luxurious moisturizer. He drenched her entire body with a creamy lotion that smelled of rose and whitened her teeth. 
When he was done, she not only looked like a cleaner version of herself, but her old self from their old life. From before the time she first changed. He'd only seen it once, and that was enough for him. Every month afterward, when the moon waxed silver in the sky, he prayed that he wouldn't see it ever again. The first time surprised him, to say the least. He and Alice were laying in bed, and he was awoken by a gagging sound, like the sound a dog makes before it's going to retch. He turned on the light, and there was Alice, sitting up in bed, her chest convulsing, and it took a moment of watching to realize she was making that awful, guttural gagging sound. It was so violent, Eugene thought she was going to cough up her organs. Then Alice stopped. Her eyes were quivering saucers. She clutched her throat and chest. Eugene asked what was wrong, if she was okay, trying to be calm because he was a surgeon and he was used to crises, but this was his wife and calm was impossible. Alice couldn't answer anyway. Her jaw worked feverishly as if chewing something too big for her mouth. She did this for a couple of minutes. Her lips peeled open with a wet smack. She looked just as surprised as Eugene did. A dark shape poked out between her lips and thrust outward, stretching her mouth from corner to corner. Light from the bedside lamp caught the shape's contours, glistening with moisture. Eugene heard two sharp intakes of breath. The shape twitched. The sound and the sight were simultaneous, which meant the impossible. The shape had breathed. A sucking sensation tugged at the base of Eugene's throat. His fingertips tingled. He couldn't move. What was his brain telling him the thing sticking out of her mouth was a nose? That couldn't be right. Alice retched again. The nose pushed outward and behind it came a furry snout and the corners of Alice's mouth ripped in a spray of blood that painted his face and chest, red dribbling down her chin and her neck, staining the collar of her nightshirt. She sprung from the bed and stood in the middle of the room. The snout grew, the skin stretching at her cheeks and by her nose until it split, the skin peeling back from her forehead over her scalp, falling away at the base of her skull. The snout turned into a face, the face of a werewolf. The creature emerged from Alice's severed neck, the flesh stripping away from her shoulders, chest, stomach, and down her legs, disintegrating before it hit the floor, like the beast had simply removed a layer of clothing. It stepped out of his wife's skin and into the world. To this day, Eugene believed the only reason he survived this incident was Alice's confusion, as her new form grew in their bedroom until its head touched the ceiling. She hadn't gotten her bearings yet, hadn't realized what she'd become, and this had saved him. It had given him enough time to run, faster than he'd ever run in his life. He should have kept running. Yes, he'd said the vows, but how much simpler would this have been if he'd broken them that night? She was still Alice between full moons, though, 
and that made him go back to the house an hour later and get in the car and drive around in search of her. He shouldn't have, nor should he have stopped when he found her, snout deep inside someone's belly, and, when she'd had her fill, scoop up the pieces and hastily bury them. But Eugene did it because he didn't want her to get into trouble, and he loved her. He told himself that a lot when he was in prison. I did it all for you, he thought while slipping Alice into his favorite of her pajamas, the silky, powdery blue ones. He carried her into bed and lay her on the soft mattress, pulling the covers to her chin, and sat on the bed next to her. He wished he could tell her the truth, why she felt so ill every month, the real reason he had been gone for three years, leaving her to endure this alone. He often wondered how she'd done it without him. Eugene almost let the truth spill many times, but then the local news would run a story about the Ides Neck Beast, a rabid animal of some sort, officials believed, and he imagined his dear Alice knowing it was who'd savaged so many innocents, and, well, he couldn't do that to her. This knowledge was his burden to bear. Eugene kissed her cheek, the forehead, softly on the lips, and told her again that he loved her and blessed her with dreamless sleep. She'd be unconscious for at least ten hours, maybe more. As usual, that gave him just enough time to clean up her mess. There was a blood trail from the kitchen, where she'd collapsed, to the entry hall and out the door to the walk path. It disappeared into the grass. She'd broken one window and shattered the wooden garden ducts. A few strips of grass had been ripped up. The damage wasn't too bad this time, small mercies. It was 4 a.m., and though sleep called to Eugene, he couldn't rest. He had to mop up blood and sweep up glass and tamp down the grass and replace the broken window with plywood. It was nearly dawn when he stuffed the garbage bag, filled to the brim with bloodied paper towels, assorted gore and debris, into the bin inside the garage. He grabbed a flashlight, popped open the garage door, and trudged into the woods that surrounded their house. It was just a few acres of hemlock, maple, and ash. Eugene had to make sure Alice hadn't brought her meal, or pieces of it, back home. Once he was sure of that, he could rest. Bleary-eyed, he scanned the forest floor, encircling his house, fantasizing about continuing to walk, crossing the invisible border between his property and the next, following the narrow peninsula to the mainland, hitchhiking to town. He'd have to change his name. This one was ruined. He imagined what he would do. Something simple, like a grocery store cashier. Nothing without thinking or worry. Or Alice. The vision was both sad and appealing. On his way back to the house, the moon caught his eye, pale in the western sky. He knew he shouldn't be mad at her for this. She didn't ask to be bitten, nor could she resist the moon's monthly call. The doctors couldn't do anything, of course. Without the werewolf detail, hers was a nonspecific malady. Any sane doctor would tell Alice her illness was all in her head. Eugene did a last scan of the ground with his flashlight, finding nothing amiss, and shuffled back toward the driveway. His anxiety would shift now, from dread of the inevitable 
to the fear of being caught. He turned his eyes to the fading stars. Before Alice got sick, he never prayed, but in the past few years, he'd made it a regular habit. Who else was he going to talk to? Please, Lord, cure my wife. He begged while standing near the mailbox. And if you can't, help us endure another month and prepare me for the next full moon. Halfway down the driveway, Eugene heard rustling inside the garage. In his exhaustion, he let the damn thing open, no doubt letting in opportunistic raccoons. After two more steps, he saw a figure emerging from the garage's depths. For a horrifying second, Eugene thought it was Alice, revived early from her slumber, transformed again, and willing to end Eugene's suffering. The figure was tall and broad-shouldered, so he could be forgiven for thinking so. This was worse. It was a young man, standing in the driveway, staring at Eugene in the pre-dawn light. An unsettling and specific kind of terror in his vacant eyes. Blood stained the front of his clothes from chest to knees and splattered his young cheeks. Alice had consumed her dinner in front of a witness. Eugene supposed it was inevitable. Werewolves in the throes of hunger weren't the most careful types. The witness held something in his left hand. He brought it closer to his body, enlisting his right arm to drape it around protectively. Eugene's heart twisted in his chest. It was the bulging garbage bag he'd just disposed of moments before. Eugene logged a couple of details about the young man's appearance. The rounded cheeks of youth, the strong shoulders and thick thighs of an athlete, and the man sprinted right into the yard and towards the woods. For a few seconds, Eugene watched his figure weave between the trees, garbage bags swinging in his hand, but he didn't move. He hadn't decided whether to follow or to stay. He wasn't thinking at all. Maybe it was shock or resignation or bone-deep fatigue, setting in at the prospect of a conclusion to his misery. The young man was gone now, to offer the garbage bag as evidence to someone, to tell a tale about the werewolf who ate his loved one and, eventually, point out the house and name the names. Awakened by the brightening sun, birds began to sing. Eugene listened to them a while, jealous of their simple lives. A shaft of light sliced across the house. He turned to the mailbox, marking the end of the drive. Mayhorns, emblazoned on the side, announced he and Alice's pairing, and this, their home. Beyond Kingthorpe Road, veered off into shadow on its way down the peninsula, to the mainland, and the promise of something else. If he could just... Find the guts to start walking. That was S. H. Liver Noises in Sickness and in Slaughter as read by Brian Rollins. Brian Rollins is a voice actor residing in Denver, Colorado. He's voiced over a dozen audiobooks, 
including the popular Glenn and Tyler series. Horror fans will want to check out Ancient Enemies by Brian McKinley, a vampire political thriller. You can visit Brian at his website, thevoicesinmyhead.com, or find him on Twitter at Voices of Brian. Thank you, Brian. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Amanda Carrillo, Lessel Baxter, Orion D. Hegra, and Paul Belcher, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we commune with the restless dead. For more, Tales to Terrify. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.